Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Genesis chapter 29. One of the greatest Hollywood actresses of all time, now there's some debate about this, but probably as far as just the golden age of Hollywood, it's probably Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. In her prime, Elizabeth Taylor was this drop dead, gorgeous woman with those violet eyes that were penetrating. Now, if you know anything about Elizabeth Taylor, you also know that she had a very tempestuous love life. Anybody know how many times she was married? She was married eight times, twice to the same guy, Richard Burton. So she had seven husbands, married eight times. It was also rumored that she dated Frank Sinatra and Malcolm Forbes, among many other people. Elizabeth Taylor was a woman whose identity was wrapped up in men. She found her joy, she found her purpose, she found her meaning in trying to find happiness in marriage. And and after marriage, after marriage, and after failed marriage, I wonder if on her deathbed she was fully satisfied and really found the love that she was looking for. You know, early in her life, she was of the religion Christian science. And she later converted to Judaism and then dabbled in Kabbalah. If you know what Kabbalah is, it's the mythical, mystical form of of Judaism. But she was a very spiritual woman. This is what she said toward the end of her life. She said, life is to be embraced and enveloped. Surgeons and knives have nothing to do with it. It has to do with the connection with nature, God, your inner being, whatever you want to call it. It's being in contact with yourself and allowing yourself, allowing God to mold you. Allowing God to mold you. I wonder if Elizabeth Taylor had any clue about the living God. And I wonder what God thought of her eight marriages. Elizabeth Taylor, a gorgeous woman who had wanted to be accepted by men, found her identity in men, kind of wanted to be accepted by God as well. But what she ended up doing was she turned romantic love into an idol. And it enslaved her. And it enslaved her. Now, why do I draw your attention this morning to Liz Taylor? What does a drop-dead, gorgeous woman And this whole idea of wanting to find romantic love have anything to do with the book of Genesis. Well, this morning, we're going to see a drop-dead gorgeous woman, and we're going to see someone making an idol out of romantic love. So in Genesis 29, here's the main point that emerges from this chapter. It's this. When we make an idol out of love... It can lead to a bondage of bitter disappointment when we make an idol 
out of love. Now, let me just stop before you get a little nervous. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be in love. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with romantic love. That's the way God has wired men and women to fall in love and to get married and to, and to have families, and, and that's God's plan. But here's the problem. When we elevate love or we elevate our spouse or we elevate that other person to a position that only God has, it becomes an idol. And that can often lead to bondage. You see, it's very easy to idolize someone you love. It's very easy to idolize a spouse, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Idolize even love itself. And it's also very easy for you and I to find our identity in another person. Because our culture screams so loudly for us to find fulfillment in romantic love. So what is idolatry? One of the best definitions comes from John Calvin. He says, The human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. The human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. We keep cranking out idols, if we're honest with ourselves. He goes on to say, Daily experience shows that the sinful mind is always restless until it finds something that looks like itself in which it finds vain comfort as a representation of God. As a result of this blind passion, men have in almost all ages since the world began set up imaginary idols before their eyes to take the place of God. A perpetual factory of idols. Tim Keller has written an excellent book called Counterfeit Gods. I encourage everybody to read it. He's got a lot of these stories in Genesis going on in this book, Counterfeit Gods. But here's how he defines idolatry. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you could spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol can be a family, children, a career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, saving face, social standing. It can be romantic relationships, peer approval, competence and skill, security and comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. I think he covered the gamut there. So an idol can be anything on this planet person or thing, relationship, that you elevate to the place that only God should have. And that thing or that person becomes the be-all, end-all of your life to meet all of your needs, to satisfy all of your longings. And when you set a person up for that, to be the be-all, end-all, to meet all of your needs, to be an idol in your life, you've set them up for failure. Now, what did we see last week with Jacob? He had a powerful encounter with the living God where this ladder from heaven comes down and God shows him grace and Jacob's life is transformed and he makes a vow and says, I'm going to serve the Lord from here on out. And then he goes off to find a wife. Now, wouldn't you not expect that after Jacob has this great encounter with God that he would never struggle again? He would never sin again. 
He would never have baggage in his life. He would never have issues. He would get it perfect, right? He'd never have problems. Now, does that describe any of you here this morning? How many of you, once you became a Christian, just kind of stopped sinning? Never had struggles, never had problems. You're perfect, right? Well, we can't expect that of Jacob. Now, Jacob's going to frustrate you. He frustrates me. Because, yes, he has this powerful encounter with the Lord, but it takes him a while to get it, just like us. So this process of growing to be more like Jesus is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. The day you and I stop struggling with sin, the day you and I become perfect, is the day that we step foot into heaven. So we've got to give Jacob some patience in this process because he's going to struggle with sin. He's going to have idols in his heart. He's going to have issues in his life. But God is still going to be faithful to Jacob because God made a promise to Jacob. Remember last week? I will be with you. I will keep you. I will never leave or forsake you. So after this dream that Jacob has of this ladder coming down from heaven, and he makes a vow, and he anoints the stone with oil, he packs off and goes to find a wife. And this is where we pick up in Genesis chapter 29. Now, Genesis chapter 29 unfolds in three scenes. Three scenes. So let's look at scene one this morning. Verses 1 through 14. Genesis 29, 1 through 14. Then Jacob went on his journey. Can we turn the lighthouse lights up just a little bit? Um, I like to be able to see what I'm reading. Is it okay? Can you guys, there, that's better. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of the well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where did you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came from her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob's, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you're a bone in my bone. I mean, you're a bone in my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Okay, we have a well scene here. A scene that takes place at a well. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we had another scene that took place at a well. In chapter 24, Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for Isaac at a well. But do you remember the servant of Abraham? 
He was a man of prayer. He was looking for God's providence. He was studying Rebecca. Remember, Rebecca was a virgin. She was an industrious woman. She was hospitable, and the servant was making sure that she was a proper fit, and he was always praising God, and he was always thanking God, and he was always trying to be in tune with God. That's what happened at the well back in Genesis 24. But here we have another well and another chance happening where Jacob's going to meet his future wife. So what motivates Jacob? Is he a man of prayer? Is he in tune with what God is doing? Is he looking for God's providential care here? Or is he struck that a drop-dead gorgeous woman shows up, and all he cares about is, wow, she's hot. All Jacob cares about at this point is, wow, she's hot. Okay, he's looking at outward appearance. He's motivated by her beauty. And Jacob's a strong man of action. What's going on here? There's this stone over the well, and it takes probably three or four shepherds to move the stone, and there's three shepherds sitting there, and Jacob's like, how come you're not moving the well? How come you're not moving the stone? How come you're not watering the sheep? And they're like, well, we need to wait for some more shepherds to show up because we really don't want to move the stone. So they're kind of lazy. And Jacob says, all right. I see a pretty girl on the horizon. He probably takes his, you know, drinks his Powerade or whatever he does, and he goes over there and he moves the stone. I mean, very strong action here. A man of action, he rolls back the stone. And then this drop-dead gorgeous woman shows up, and what does he do? He goes up and he kisses her. Now, this is probably not romantic at the first because it was a custom in that culture to kiss a long-lost relative, but Jacob had not told her who he was. He's just the strange guy that comes up and begins kissing her, and she's probably thinking, who is this forward man that's kissing me at this well? What Jacob is doing is he's stealing a kiss from this woman. And then in verse 12, he finally tells her who he is. Now, I want you to understand Jacob here. He's whipped, as they would say it in our culture. He's smitten. He's love-struck. He's seen the love of his life. This drop-dead gorgeous woman comes out of nowhere, and Jacob, like those old cartoons with Tom and Jerry, his tongue is hanging out, and his eyes are popping out of his head, and he has to have this woman. And Laban, her dad, is going to take advantage of Jacob in this weakness of being whipped by this girl. So let's read scene two. What happens? Let's pick up in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? And now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah 
and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now Laban here is a master swindler. Laban is taking advantage of his gullible nephew. Now because Jacob was a family member, he really shouldn't have to be a servant. But Laban's saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire you out, young man. What's your price going to be? What can I pay you with? And Jacob doesn't hesitate. What does he say? I want Rachel. That's what I want. But he has two daughters. The older name Leah. Her name means cow. Rachel's name means little lamb. So even their names show a difference between these two women. Then we find out in verse 17 there, Leah's eyes were weak. We don't really know what this means. There's some scholarly debate. Some scholars would say that she was cross-eyed. Others would say her eyes were not sparkling under the veil that captured the beauty like, like, like Rachel's eyes. She, she just kind of had dull eyes. Whether she was dull or whether she was cross-eyed, Leah is the homely daughter that nobody wanted. Rachel, on the other hand, the Hebrew text here says she was drop-dead gorgeous. Probably a good translation. Verse 17, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Literal Hebrew, she was drop-dead gorgeous. She was smoking hot. She was attractive. She was beautiful. She had a shapely figure and a strikingly beautiful face. And so you see the difference between these two daughters. The older is not as good-looking, not as striking, and Jacob could care less about Leah. His mind is on the younger, Rachel. And verse 18 tells it all. Jacob loved Rachel. So much so that he was willing to serve seven years. Now Laban does not set the terms of this work arrangement. Jacob sets it. I'll work for seven years. That seems like a long time to get a wife. But it doesn't matter to Jacob because he's in love with Rachel. That word love, Jacob loved Rachel, it means romantic sexual passion. It's more of a sexual term. You can almost say it this way. Jacob was in lust with Rachel. I mean, he loved her, but it was this sexually passionate, attractive love that just looks at the outward appearance, at her beauty, at her physicality. Now, let me just say something here about pornography. Men, by nature, are drawn to visual stimuli. 
Men prefer looking at beautiful images, pictures. Men are drawn to visual. Women, on the other hand, again, this may be a stereotype, but women, on the other hand, are drawn more to emotional connection. And so one of the things that happens to men is that when, when, when you get trapped in pornography, what you're doing is you're committing idolatry. Because what you're doing is you are looking at another person and you're setting that person up in the pornography to be the ideal of what you expect your spouse to be. And your spouse cannot be the fantasy world of what pornography offers. And so you have these unrealistic expectations on what you think your spouse or your future spouse should be based upon pornography. And basically what you're doing is you're putting unrealistic expectations on your wife to fulfill what you see in porn, hoping that that's going to happen in your marriage. And you end up setting an idol out of porn and an idol out of your wife to do something that she was never meant to do. And I think Jacob here is operating on his eyes. I see a beautiful woman. Now there's a subtle clue in the text in verse 19 about Laban's duplicity. Laban is a master manipulator. Look at verse 19. Does Laban come out and say, sure, Jacob, why don't you work for seven years and then I'll give you Rachel. Let's handshake on it. Let's put it in writing. I'm going to agree with you. What does he say? He's kind of cryptic, right? He's kind of fuzzy. He's not really, he's not really clear. It's better that I give her to you than to another guy. But does he really say yes? No, but he leads Jacob on to think, hey, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. I'm going to give you Rachel. You're going to work seven years for Rachel. And it just seemed like a day to him because he loved her so much. Now, what a wonderful day it would have been on day, the last day there. Jacob has been chomping at the bit for the seven years to get over. I'm sure he's counting the seconds. And finally, it comes. And what does he do? He goes into Laban. And he says in verse 21, it's really not polite language. It's kind of crude in the Hebrew text. Basically, he says, I want to have sex with this woman. Bring her to me now. After seven years, he's developed a little bit of a sexual appetite, and he wants to get it fulfilled. And he's like, Laban, come fulfill my wishes now. And Laban says, okay, let's have a party first. We've waited seven years. Let's, let's, throw a par- let's throw a wedding party. And so he throws this festival, this wedding party, probably a week-long festival, a week-long bridal period, a week-long feast. And probably what ended up happening on the last night was when the, the couple would consummate their marriage. I'm sure that Laban had the alcohol flowing to make Jacob a little tipsy. Because what happens? Jacob goes in and he's fooled. Now let me tell you a little bit about the culture back then. In that culture, during that seven-week period, the bride would wear a veil. She would wear a veil as part of her custom. And then on the wedding night, she would wear a veil. That's how he could be tricked. So he went in to the wrong woman. But this was Laban's arrangement. If she wore the veil, he could trick her. And then what happens? Jacob wakes up. And all of his dreams come crashing down. Notice what he says there in verse 25. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. And and Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? What's Jacob's name? Deceiver. You can say that Jacob got Jacobed. Jacob got Jacob by Laban. 
So Jacob and Laban are going to be Jacobing each other. They're going to be deceiving each other. But think about Jacob's desperate longing for Rachel. Think about Jacob's life for a moment. Did he have his father's love? No. Isaac didn't love Jacob. He loved Esau. He was kind of a mama's boy, right? His mama mothered him and manipulated him. But here he is all by himself. He's no longer with his mom. He's no longer with his dad. He's kind of on the run from his brother Esau. And so he sees this drop-dead gorgeous woman, Rachel, and what he does is he says, all the things that I want to fill the void of what I've not gotten from my parents, I'm going to find in her. She's my be-all, end-all. I'm infatuated with Rachel. I've got to have her. She's all I need. He's desperate. He's desperate for her to fill that void. And here's why it's unfair. Here's why it's idolatry. Jacob is setting Rachel up to be something she can never be. You see, when you set a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or another person into a position to meet all of your needs, to be the be-all, end-all, to, to, to meet all of your fantasies, to fulfill every one of your needs, what you have end up doing is you've elevated them to a place of God, and when they don't perform... Or when they fail you, it leaves you shattered with disappointment and you become enslaved to that person. It's in bondage. And so all of Jacob's dreams come crashing down when he finds out it's not Rachel, it's Leah. And then Laban kind of excuses himself. Hey, man, I never really agreed to give you Rachel. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of a custom in our country to give the older daughter first and then the younger daughter. So, so really, I didn't fool you. You, just, you didn't clue into what our culture tells us to do. I didn't do anything wrong. And so basically, Jacob says, I'll work another seven years because I want Rachel. So 14 years of hard labor for the woman that he wants. And verse 30 tells it all. Jacob finally went into Rachel. He loved Rachel more than Leah. It's going to cause problems in their family. Okay, he's got two wives, and he loves one more than the other. This is going to be a problem for Jacob because later on he's going to love Joseph more than the other brothers. It's a blind spot in Jacob's life. But here's where the irony comes in this story. The story's not over yet. The homely, rejected daughter actually becomes the one that can bear children. And the drop-dead gorgeous one can't. And it causes major division in Jacob's family. So let's look at scene three and see how it plays out. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. 
Leah is the daughter that the father didn't want. She's the wife that the husband doesn't want. She's rejected. She's bitter. And it says here that the Lord saw that she was hated, that she was rejected, she was unloved. And yet, she's able to bear Jacob children. So we have the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel right here, coming from the rejected wife. Firstborn, Reuben. And what does she think to herself? Jacob doesn't love me, but maybe, just maybe, if I give him children, then he'll love me. That's what she says with Reuben. She says, verse 32, she conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben. She said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Maybe, just maybe, if I give him children, Jacob will love me. He'll take his eyes off Rachel, and I will be the apple of his eye because I'm giving him children. And so what she ends up doing is she becomes an idolater. She makes an idol out of something good, not something bad, which shows us that idols can be good things. She makes an idol out of her motherhood. I'm finding all of my identity in making babies, and if I can just do that, if I can just crank out children, then Jacob's going to love me. She's a desperate woman. And then the second son, Simeon. And then the third son, Levi. By the time the third son comes, she's thinking, maybe three is a charm. I mean, I've given him three sons. Maybe this time, the third time, Levi, he'll be attached to me. That's where Levi means attached. Maybe Jacob will love me because I've given him three sons. But does Jacob's love come? Do we ever find, as we read through the rest of these scriptures, does Jacob take his eyes off Rachel and begin to dote on Leah? Does he show affection to Leah? Does he come back and say, oh, I love you, Leah? No, it never comes. She's been thinking to herself, if I just put all of my hopes in having children, then he'll love me. She's made an idol out of Jacob, hoping that he'll be the be-all, end-all of her life, and she's put hope in her ability to have children. She's created an idol out of two good things, an idol out of marriage and an idol out of motherhood. So an idol doesn't have to be a bad thing. An idol can be a good thing, but when a good thing becomes a God thing, place that takes the place of God, it becomes a bad thing because Jacob's love doesn't come. But I want you to notice a shift. Reuben, Simeon, Levi. But then there's a fourth child. And there's a change of tone in Judah. Judah is the fourth child child. But notice in verse 35 how her tone changes. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I'll praise the Lord. She doesn't say, this time I'm going to get mad at God. This time, maybe Jacob will love me the fourth time. This time I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be bitter. No. She says, this time I'll praise the Lord. See, she's had a change. She's come to the point where she realizes that I can't, I can't buy Jacob's love. I can't earn Jacob's love. My producing children's not going to bring Jacob's love. I can't wrap my identity up in my husband or in my babies. Only thing I can do is I've got to turn now to the Lord. I'm going to praise 
the Lord. I'm going to come to the Lord, and I'm going to shatter these idols I've had of romantic love, of motherhood, of marriage, of Jacob, and I'm going to find my ultimate satisfaction in, in the Lord. In the Lord. Judah's name means, may God be praised. She finds her identity finally in the Lord. Now let me just say this to women. I've spoken to men about pornography. Let me say this about women because I've, I've seen it often, probably more often than I can count. There are a lot of women, young women, old women, single women, married women, college-age women, high school, all, all types of women that seek to find their identity in a man. If I just had a boyfriend, I'll be complete. And you're the type of girl that can, you can never not have a boyfriend. If I just find a man to complete me, then I will be fully satisfied. And so you spend all of your time looking for a man to satisfy you, and you may make really bad choices in the process. Because what's the most important to you is finding a man. You will compromise, you will make rash decisions, and you'll do whatever you need to do to get a man, because after all, you as a woman are not complete unless you have a man. Especially as a divorced woman, you may think, but I'm bitter now, because God has taken away my man. And you find your identity in a man. I'm not saying don't get married. I'm not saying don't, don't you know, be boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. What I'm saying is this. Women, your identity needs to be found in Christ, in Christ alone. That's where your true identity comes in Christ. Because no man is going to satisfy you the way Jesus can. You're setting men up for failure. You're elevating men to a position they are never supposed to have. You're putting them on a pedestal. And when the first time that man fails you, the first time that man disappoints you, you're going to be bitter and you're going to be angry because you've put him up on a pedestal of a place that only God can have. So women, please find your identity in Christ. Now what happens when all of our hopes and dreams come crashing down? Think about Jacob. When you wake up and it's Leah, not Rachel... And you have that, oh my goodness, the, the dreams come crashing down. Or you're like Leah, after three times I've tried to win his love and he just doesn't bring it back to me. And you feel crushed and rejected. How do you deal with all of your dreams coming down? How do you deal with disappointment? Well, one of the things you can do is you can blame the other person and say, you know what, it's their fault. I'm going to move on to bigger and better things. I'm just going to find a new boyfriend. I'm going to find a new girlfriend. I'm going to find a new lover. I'm going to find a new relationship. It's their issue, and it's their loss, so I'm just going to keep going from person to person to person to try to fulfill me. That's one way you can re- respond. The other way is you can turn and blame yourself. I must be, there must be something wrong with me. I'm a failure. I'm wicked. You begin to hate yourself and think, I'm a failure, and nobody must love me, and you, you turn all inward and become self-loathing. Or you can do what Leah did. And finally come to that point in your life where you reorientate everything in your life around the Lord. This time, I'm going to praise the Lord. This time, I'm going to find all of my hopes and dreams in the Lord. This time, I'm going to find the deepest longings in my soul in the Lord. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Here's the issue, Christians. 
God made you with desires. God made you to be passionately in love and to have strong desires. And a lot of times Christians try to suppress those desires, and desires aren't bad if they're oriented in the right way. If they're oriented in the wrong or sinful way, it's a bad thing. But sometimes our passions aren't strong enough for Jesus. And what we need to do is we need to find in Christ our be-all, end-all. You see, God has put within us a desire to know him. And as C.S. Lewis says, if there's that thing in us that's not, if nothing else in this world satisfies us, that means that we were made for Christ. And only Christ can satisfy. Only Christ is our all in all. Only Christ is the one that, that can give us everything that our heart needs. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, Leah finally finally stopped trying to find her identity in her motherhood or in Jacob's love and said, I'm going to find my identity, I'm going to find my joy, I'm going to find my purpose in praising the Lord. She's the only one in the story that calls out to Jesus in prayer, calls out to the name of the Lord in prayer. She's the only one that's praying. Is Jacob praying? Is Laban praying? Is Rachel praying? No, because they're all three immersed in their own web of idolatry. Now, that's not the end of the story. Because we have the birth of Judah. If you know anything about the Bible, what do you know about Judah? Judah is the tribe through whom Christ comes. Do you find it ironic that the mother of Judah is the rejected, despised, hated one? The Messiah is going to come through the girl that nobody cared about. The Messiah is going to come through the reject. The Messiah is going to come through the one that was ugly. The Messiah is going to come through the one that nobody would pick. Now, if Hollywood was doing this movie, they would say Rachel's the one. Because what does our world look at? Our world looks at beauty. Our world looks at popularity. Our world looks at power. Our world says, let's put Rachel up on a pedestal because she's a beautiful woman. Let's let Jesus come through Rachel because obviously she's the best pick because she's beautiful. But God says, no, I'm choosing Judah to come through the one that was not first. Not beautiful. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In essence, what, God, what Paul's saying there is God chose us. We are weak. We are feeble. We are, we are, we are the rejected. We are not all that. And God chose that to bring him the greatest glory because Christ, Christ's power and Christ's wisdom is so far superior than what this world values. And so God chooses the unloved, the weak, the rejected, the powerless, the unloved. I want you to think about Jesus for a moment. He's the future son of Leah. Now obviously Mary's the son of Jesus, but Leah conceived Judah. The tribe of Judah brought about David, ended up bringing about Joseph, and then Jesus. So Leah, ultimately, if you trace it all the way back, she's the mother of Jesus. 
Was he truly Leah's son? Was he rejected and despised and unloved? Isaiah 53 For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was despised. Jesus was unloved. Was Jesus received by his own? John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. It's in the fact that Jesus was rejected, Jesus was unloved, Jesus was despised, that we can be accepted, we can be loved, and we can be God's children. It's through his death, his burial, and his resurrection that we can experience a love greater than anything this world has to offer. Love coming to the unlovely, love coming to the weak, love coming to the rejected. So how do we shatter these idols in our hearts? All of us have idols in our hearts, and here's the only way I know how to do it. The way you shatter idols, the way you deal with idolatry, is you've got to fight fire with fire. And what I mean by that is this. You've got to see in Jesus a far greater, far superior, far more beautiful satisfaction for your soul than anything on this world has to offer and then you begin to focus all of your attention on what Jesus can offer you his glory his majesty his beauty and then when you're overwhelmed by Christ then the idols are pushed out because you're not attracted to the idols anymore you're attracted to Jesus so how you deal with idolatry is yes you've got to say no to sin but you've got to say yes to Jesus and you've got to keep focusing on Jesus and you've got to find your satisfaction in Jesus and you've also got to stop making idols making saviors out of other people do you realize you can make a savior out of another person now you would never say they're my savior but what are you doing if you put a person up on a pedestal to meet all of your needs you're making them a savior and jesus is the only savior so anytime you elevate a person or a relationship as an idol you're basically saying jesus isn't my savior they're my savior and you've got to take your eyes off them and put your eyes on jesus And we come to the end of our rope like Leah did, and we finally say, finally, at last, my hope is in the Lord. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to find my my source of joy in the Lord. And what ends up happening is, when you find your joy in the Lord, when you find your satisfaction in the Lord, that bondage is gone. And you're free to no longer be disappointed, and you're free to no longer be embittered, Because your heart is free to love Jesus and you're finding your ultimate joy in Him and He's never going to disappoint. All these other relationships, they're going to disappoint you. Newsflash, if you're getting ready to get married as a young woman or young man, don't look for a husband to fulfill all of your needs. Don't look for a wife to fulfill all your needs. Don't look for a child to fulfill all your needs. No human being was ever meant to do that. Only Jesus. So I'm going to ask you, what is your life? What consumes your life this morning? Is it a spouse? Is it a relationship? Is it a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a child, a career, a job, a sport? What consumes your life? Or more specifically, maybe I should ask it this way. Not what is your life. Who is your life?
Colossians 3, 3-4 says this, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Is this verse true for you? Is Christ your life? Is He your all in all? Is He everything to you? Are you hidden in Him? Is He your treasure? Is He your joy? Do you find ultimate satisfaction, purpose, meaning ultimately in Christ? Or are you finding it in all these other things this world has to offer, which only disappoint, which only enslave, and which only make you bitter? So find your satisfaction, find your joy, find everything in Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, would you this morning, in this act of worship, confess to Jesus that He is your life? Jesus, you're my life. You're my everything. You're my all in all. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy. You're it, you're the ultimate. Would you spend some time this morning just coming to Christ and confessing your need for Him as your all in all to smash those idols in your heart and to find your joy in Him? Spend just a few moments in silent prayer. Father, all of us have idols in our hearts this morning that need to be shattered, need to be broken need to be dashed to pieces, need to be destroyed. And our only hope is to look to you, Jesus, as our ultimate source of joy, our ultimate source of satisfaction, our ultimate source of purpose, our ultimate source of, of meaning, of joy. So Holy Spirit, would you come do a work in our hearts where the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of Christ's glory and grace that that the idols that enslave us, Lord, would look to us as ugly, as filthy, as rotten, and we would not want to cling to them. And Jesus, would you be glorious and beautiful and powerful to us. May our eyes be fixed upon you only. Lord, help us to repent this morning. Help us to confess. Help us to cast ourselves at you, Jesus. For we know that when we call upon you, when we cast ourselves upon you, when we cast our cares upon you, you care for us, you love us, you accept us, you receive us, you don't turn us away. So help us to come with confidence today, knowing that when we confess sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us of all um, sin and cleanse us of all right unrighteousness. And the only way we can do that is because of what you did first for us, Jesus, in your death, burial, and resurrection. And so as we come to your table this morning, Lord Jesus, as we come to the Lord's table, may it be an act of worship, an act of joy, an act of, an act of grace that we can just come and enjoy fellowship with you, Jesus, because you've cleansed us and because you are our all in all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.